Shalom. This is Gary Dershinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Now, we're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 27, where David continues to be on the run. We're coming to the end of the first half of the life of David. And this is more of his time of preparation for the throne. He's already been anointed as king by Samuel many chapters before, chapter 10 or so, maybe even earlier than that. But David has not had opportunity to sit on the throne to reign over his people, but has had to run for his life. When we come to chapter 27, it follows on the heels of two events. One was his marriage to Abigail, found in chapter 25. It is there that you remember his men have been guarding the shepherds of Nabal, And they had been protecting them. And now it's time for the shearing of the sheep. And Nabal does not want to share any of his stuff. And David is about to attack and to kill. He's taken 400 of his men and has traveled over to Nabal. And he had vowed that no one would remain alive. He was so angry. And we're dealing with issues of anger. We find that Abigail had met David as he approaches Nabal and approaches Uh, his home and she gets off of her donkey off of her horse and bows down before David and pleads with him to attribute Naval's foolishness to herself his sinfulness to herself and not to destroy his character or his conscience by having murder on his heart when he was yet to sit on the throne David responds and spares Naval and his family. The next day, when Abigail tells Naval what had happened, he's hit with a stroke, and ten days later, he dies. And David marries Abigail, brings her to his home, and uh, moves on with his life. But now, in chapter 26, we find that word travels to Saul once again about David's location. This is the second time. You remember the first time he was in En Gedi. And it was there that he cut off a piece of the robe of Saul. And when Saul saw that David had spared his life, Saul is struck with compassion. He leaves the wilderness. He leaves the pursuit of David. He goes back to Judah and Israel and leaves David for a time. But David knew that it would only be for a time. 
Because now we read in chapter 26 that Saul is on the move to kill David yet again. This time they're in the wilderness. And David, with one of his men, sneaks into the camp of Saul. He enters into Saul's tent. And rather than to cut off a piece of his robe, he takes Saul's spear. He must have seen that spear as it was just sticking in the dirt next to where Saul was sleeping. And he thought, that spear was thrown at me not once but twice. And he takes that spear, which was a symbol of Saul's rulership and leadership. And along with the spear, he takes a jug of water. Both of these things were meant to sustain the king. The spear would sustain his life if attacked. The water would sustain his life in the wilderness, in the desert, where water was scarce. He takes it with him and with the man that was with him, and they go up on top of a hill. And in the middle of the night, they call out to Saul. And they call out to Abner, who is Saul's personal bodyguard. They had all fallen asleep. The text says that God had caused a great sleep to fall upon them. I'm sure they felt that they were safe because David was not going to attack them. They knew this. And so they felt, I'm sure, that they could get a good night's sleep. But there is David on the top of the hill and he calls out to Abner. And he calls Abner, Abner, and he calls out to Saul. And Abner realizes that's David who's calling. Saul wakes up in the middle of the night. He asks the question, is that you, David? He can't see him. It's dark. And David responds, it is, my Lord, again, with great respect. And David says, look, why have you come after me? I'm not trying to harm you. And if you would send up a servant, I'll give you back your spear and your jug of water. He sends the man up. The spear, the jug of water are returned to Saul. Saul says these final words in verse 28. Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way. Saul returned to his place. That's the last time they will face each other. Because when we get to chapters uh, 20, uh, chapter, uh, let's see, chapter 28, 29, and then uh, later in chapter 31, we will read of the death of Saul and his sons. But sh- surrounding that moment is an incident in David's life that I wanted to draw your attention to. Because it is not uncommon that after a time of successfulness, there's sort of a lull, there's sort of a, uh, a depression that can set in. And that's what this passage really is about. It's how David deals with a moment of depression in his life after a high point of success. I mean, here is Saul, who he has spared his life, not once but twice. Here is Saul telling him, you will indeed succeed. And so how does David respond to all of these accolations and all this positive sort of uh, statements that are coming his way? Well, if you look at verse 27, it says, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose, went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, 
the son of Maoch, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man and his household. And David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. I think this is pretty remarkable, don't you? I mean, this very first verse, David said in his heart. In other words, David is talking to himself. He's thinking out loud, as it were. He's speaking about his future. We all speak to ourselves on occasion, don't we? Do you ever find yourself talking to yourself? You know, The problem is sometimes we don't listen, or maybe we listen at the wrong times. It's not that we look into a mirror and start talking with each other. You know, I'm lonely. I need someone to talk to. There I am. I can talk to myself. But I find myself talking to myself when I'm trying to put something together and I'm putting this, I say, no, that's not right. How did I do that? And then I hear Mary say, is everything okay in there? I said, yeah, we're just working on some stuff together here, you know. We're working this out. And I saw that I, I was putting some tables together and I realized that this was put wrong and I had put the, you know, who reads directions? It can't be that hard, right? And so I realized that I, that I had the washers in the wrong place. I had to take it apart. I'm saying, what's wrong with you, Gary? Why can't you do this right? Everything okay with you guys in there, Mary Lou says? You know, everything all right with you? That's what I find myself talking to myself more often than not is when things are a struggle. But the problem is, first of all, what David does is rather than talk to himself, what he ought to do is talk to God, right? And so in this whole section, you'll find David does not talk to God until the very end, where it says, and David strengthened himself in the Lord. But up until that point, we've got to go about two or three chapters, everything is about David focusing in on himself and not looking to the Lord in order to sustain him, to uphold him, and to provide the answers he might need. So the first thing that he does wrong, and I think oftentimes we ourselves do wrong, especially when we are hit with a moment of discouragement, a moment of depression, a moment uh, in which we don't like the way things are going, rather than call out to God. We basically talk to ourselves and say, what did I do wrong here? Why is this happening? And we may even talk to others, but we don't think about talking to God first more often than not. And David is like that. You know, it's also interesting, of all the Psalms David writes, there's no Psalms that come out of this period of David's life. And we're talking a period of over a year, because he'll stay in Gath under the leadership of the Philistine king Achish for 16 months. And during this time, there's no Psalms. During this time, there's no reference to him praying. During this time, we only have David focused in on himself and his challenge. The second thing that's interesting is not only does he focus in on himself, but look what he tells himself. Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. Now, why did he feel that way? I mean, he just was delivered from Saul, not once, but twice. And yet he concludes, there's going to come a time I'm going to perish by Saul's hands. He's going to get me. How many times can I escape this particular onslaught by Saul and his people? How often can I make it out from this predicament? You know, sometimes it gets a point in life where you think, can I really survive one more challenge like this? 
Can I really keep my head above water after the water is coming up and appears to be overwhelming me and drowning me? Can I make it one more step? David is saying, this is going to be it. I know it. He's going to come after me and I'm not going to be able to escape. But you know what? The fault on David's part here, I think, I think, is that David fails to reflect on the promises God has made and rather reflects on his own sort of pessimism about his own personal life experiences. Now, there are some of us that are just oriented to a more negative, pessimistic way of looking at life. You know, we just are, that's just the way we're, we're made. Some of us are more optimistic. Some of us just naturally see through or beyond or around or over or under some light somewhere. And unfortunately, for those of us who are more on that bent of things, we're oftentimes perceived, and I'm more in that bent of things, you know, and we're oftentimes perceived as you're naive. How can you see light in this dark cave? You know, but there's just this little crackle of light, right? You're just naive. You're not seeing light. You're just hoping to see light, you know. But you're just naive about the world around you. For me, the way I think about it is, now at 62, having come to faith when I was 17, I've gone through a variety of struggles and pitfalls, and yet here I am. At 62, God has brought us through. You know, if we just kind of look back at what God has done, And given praise for all that he has accomplished in our lives or enabled us to accomplish. And so David is looking at the possibility of Saul pursuing him and killing him. And yet, over and over again, David has been promised he's going to be king. Not just once or twice or three times, but if I'm not mistaken, nearly four times he has been reminded that he's going to be king. We just saw one here. Saul, in this instance, doesn't say king. But at the end of chapter 26, he says, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things, and you will succeed in them. Well, that certainly doesn't sound like someone who's going to be able to take his life. Because he's going to do many things, and he's going to be successful. Saul himself has just said that. But if you go back to chapter 25, you'll find that Abigail reminds him this also. She says, and when the Lord has done to my Lord, I'm looking at verse 30, when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause. She has reminded him, look, you're going to be prince over Israel. You're going to rule over Israel. And when you come to that place, don't have this moment of anger reflected or manifested in murder hang on your conscience. And so not only did Saul tell him, you will succeed and do many things, but Abigail had told him, indeed, the Lord will fulfill his promise to you to be king. And when you're king, you don't want to have this on your conscience. But it wasn't just Abigail. If you go back another chapter, if you go back to chapter 24, when David spared Saul's life for the first time, he says, 
uh, Saul says, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. I'm looking at verse chapter 24, verse 17. You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. So Saul has told him twice. Abigail has told him once. And it's not just Saul and Abigail. But if you'll remember, if we go back to, let's see, chapter 23, and you look at verse 15, it says, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horus. Verse 17. And Jonathan said to David, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. And so here's a fourth time he's been reminded of the fact that he's going to be king. But that's not all. If you go back earlier when David met with Samuel for the first time, Samuel anointed David as king. And that David had, re- or God had rejected all of David's brothers. So four or five times David has been told you're going to be king. And so I think one of the things we can learn here is that when we are in a downward spiral, when we are dealing with depression, even after a high point of success in our lives, the first thing is we need to focus on God and not on ourselves. We need to be praying to him. We need to be seeking him. We need to be looking to him. And when we look to him, we need to remember the promises. We need to remember what God has told us. You know, Philippians, for me, is one of those key promise statements. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it. I mean, there is no greater promise, I think, for me than that passage of Scripture. Because I know God has begun a work in me. And, I, and now I'm being told God's going to complete that work that he has for me. And so what I need to do is keep putting one foot in front of the other until I can't put a foot in front of the other anymore, and then the work will be complete. He's not finished with us. And that's just not me, of course. That's all of us. But that's the passage that I always remember. That which God has begun, he's going to bring to completion. Whatever that is for me and whatever that is for you. The thief on the cross, we might say, what a terrible thing it is that it's only at the very end of his life, the very few hours he had left, that that would be the last or the only time that he would walk with God, as it were. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. It would have been so much more wonderful, wouldn't it, if he had lived his whole life following God in that way? And when Messiah was present for those three and a half years, we would say that. We would think that, I think. I would. I do. But yet, as the thief on the cross who comes to the Lord at that very final hour, think of the message that has provided for so many billions of people over the course of history. God had a particular plan and purpose for him. And what that purpose was, he began, and maybe he began it right on the cross, and it was complete within a few hours. 
But God used that moment and used that man throughout the course of history to inspire and to encourage how many billions of people who have read and reflected on that moment. We have no idea what our life might be for another person or for many other persons for that matter. We have no idea, but God has begun a work and he will complete it in his time and in his way. And so when we do face those times of trials, we turn our attention to him. We remember the promises because God will bring to fruition that which he has begun. And what he began with David was to establish him as king. And that was not going to fail. God would protect him. God would watch over him. And God would bring him to that place where he would sit on the throne and he would reign as king over Israel. And more than that, he would become that one who would be symbolic of the king of Israel, the greater son of David, who would be his descendant, who would come into our world and provide us with life everlasting. Now, do not think that if we give in to depression or to those negative kinds of feelings and thoughts that it doesn't have ramifications and consequences, however. Look at what else we learn in this passage. He says not only that that he would perish, but look what it causes him to do. He says, I'm going to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. Now, that's something of an assumption, really. We don't know. He didn't know what Saul would do. But he figured Saul wouldn't pursue him in the land of the Philistines. But what a horrible thing to do, don't you think? I mean, to leave the land of your forefathers, to leave the land that is rightly your land, and to go into the land of your enemy. And not only to the land of his enemy, but to the very city that Goliath came from, the city of Gath. And to submit himself to the king of Gath, Achish, who would lead his troops against David's own people, Israel. And what a terrible thing for David. When he enters into the city of Gath, what does he do? He bows before Achish, the king of the Philistines, the king over Gath, and he calls himself his servant. He refers to him as my Lord, and he says of himself, I am your servant. And because of his faithfulness in this way, Achish allows him to stay in the land of the Philistines. And this causes utter conflict for David. Because now in the land of the Philistines, he still has to go on sorties. He still has to go on the attack. He's got 600 men, plus their wives, plus their families. He's given the city of Ziglag for himself. But now he's got to report to the king to show his faithfulness. How does he do this? He has to sort of resort to some duplicity. And he makes like he's a friend of the Philistines when in his heart he knows he's not. So what does he do? He attacks some of the enemies of Israel in the southern part of the land of Israel, the Negev, in the desert. And when Achish calls for a report, what have you been doing? He's got to be very vague. And so he says, well, I've been attacking in the south. He doesn't tell him that he's been attacking some of those that were friends with the Philistines. He only tells them, I've been attacking units and I've been attacking some of the villages in the southern part of Israel. But he's not been attacking the Philistines' enemies, Israel. He can't get himself to do that. But he has to lie. He has to show duplicity. He has to uh, cover up what he's doing. Until then, it gets to a point where he leaves 
with the troops of the Philistines. Achish marshals his forces. He's going to attack Israel. It will be in this context that Saul and his sons will die. And in route, fortunately for David and his men, because I wonder what was going through David's mind. Do I follow through with the Philistines and attack my countrymen? Or was he thinking of perhaps attacking the Philistines from the rear with his troops? We don't know what David was thinking, but in route, as the Philistines are coming up the coast and they enter into the Jezreel Valley, the leaders, the lords they're referred to as, the generals, the leaders, the military uh, captains of the Philistine troops, they say to Achish, how can we have David and his men alongside of us and even in our rear when we're about to attack Israel? Do you really think David is going to be faithful to us and faithful to you? Achish made him his own personal bodyguard, he said. He was concerned that he might, you know, attack his own men. So he wants them close by so he can watch him very closely. But eventually all the military leaders of the Philistines, they say to Achish, we cannot go to battle with David here alongside of us. So Achish says to David, your men are going to have to leave the battle. I think in one sense David was relieved because now he doesn't have to attack his own people. But when he returns to Ziglag, what does he find? The city has been burned to the ground. His wives and all of the wives and children have been taken. And David has to go in pursuit to rescue his people. What I find is that oftentimes when we are brought into a place of despondency and depression and difficulty like this, we turn our attention to ourselves, not God. We forget the promises God has made. We attempt to solve things in our own strength, and we oftentimes make more mess of things than we ought to have. And we find ourselves dragging other people along. And this is what David has done. He's dra- he dragged drug, his other people along, and they bear the consequence. All these people are taken captive because of David's fearfulness and his running to the enemy. Keep in mind, he spent a year and a half in this context, not just a few months or a few weeks, but a year and a half. He is able to rescue his people, that is for sure. But it says in chapter 30, very interesting passage, it says, when David and his men came to Ziglag on the third day, the Amalekites had made it a raid against the Negev, against Ziglag. They overcame it and they took everything. And then when you look at verse 6, David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him. Isn't that amazing? The people, these people were loyal to David from the very beginning. But now because of David's choice to run from his challenges... And to run in the wrong direction rather than to run into them and to face them with the strength of God. He brought other people into the foray of these challenges and difficulties. And the result was they turn on him. And he begins to see this. And so it says, and David and the people were with him. They raised their voices. They wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives were taken. David was greatly distressed. The people were speaking out against him. They were talking about stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each of his sons and daughters. 
But here's the key, and this is where we all have to come to. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And once he strengthens himself, not by sort of pulling himself up, you know, his boots up by the bootstraps, but he looked to God. Here's the first time that we read of this year and a half. He strengthens himself in God, and he goes in pursuit of his people. And in going in pursuit, he's able to rescue them and to bring them back. He will then learn of Saul's death. He'll learn of his Saul's son's death and his good friend, his closest friend, Jonathan's death. And then David has to deal with the loss of these loved ones from his life. So as we face challenges, and maybe after Thanksgiving, you know, there's sometimes there's a lull. I sort of felt it on Sunday. We had everyone over, and then people were gone. It was like, is that it? <laughs> you know? is, is, that, is that all there is? You know? And it was sort of a sad moment. We didn't do too much that day. We just sort of hung around the house. It was, you know, just a time of rest. But we need to remember to turn our hearts Not to ourselves as David did, but to the Lord. We need to seek strength from him and to walk in his ways and to follow him and to remember his promises and he will sustain us and he will uphold us. Well, let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your love and and faithfulness to us. Lord, as we read these passages about David, they are challenging indeed. In some sense, they're encouraging that a man like David would experience the very same kinds of emotional challenges we face as well. We sometimes look at these characters in the Bible as if they're larger than life, but they're not larger than life. They are like real life. And they're real human beings with all of their strengths as well as all of their foibles, with all of their convictions as well as all of their compromising. And so, Lord, as we look at this moment in David's life, it is a low moment in which he gives in to his fears. He gives in to his depression, into his despondency. And he made some very foolish choices. One of which was to go over to the side of the enemy. Sometimes we do that when we submit ourselves to our sin and our sinfulness. We don't guard our hearts And we allow ourselves to say things we would rather not say and would not normally say. We find ourselves doing things that we would not normally do or desire to do. But like David, we find ourselves doing the kinds of things that you have saved us from. We go over to the side of the enemy. We begin to become like the enemy. And we even sometimes act like the enemy. Sometimes we're duplicitous. Sometimes we're vague. Sometimes we're outrightly sinful. May you guard our hearts that we would not behave this way. And as a consequence, sometimes it infects or impacts others. Even as David's choice impacted all the children, the men, the women who were taken captive. So we pray, Father, that you would help us do right. Because no one is an island to himself and all that we do has an impact on those around us. So may we be wise in how we behave. May we be wise in how we think about the challenges 
and the conflicts we face. But Lord, may our hearts and minds be attentive to your voice. May our very innermost being be aligned with your word. May we remember the great promises that you have made for us, that you would uphold us and you would sustain us with your right hand. Father, that you would never leave us nor forsake us, that where two or more are gathered, there you are in our midst, that your spirit has been given as a gift and he dwells within us and he guides us and he leads us and he teaches us all things. And so we pray, Father, that our focus and our attention might always be on you. And that we would do right in your eyes. So, Father, may you be blessed even as we walk in your ways. And in thinking of walking in your ways, we remember Yeshua, our Messiah, who despite the conflicts and challenges he faced, always walked worthy of his relationship with you, always walked worthy of your holy name, our Father. We thank you for what he has provided for us and that he has granted us salvation by his death, burial, resurrection and has promised us that one day we shall be changed and that this corruptible will put on incorruption, this mortal will put on immortality. And we will see you even as you are. So we bless you, Lord, and pray that you help us to walk worthy of the name of Messiah. For we pray in his name, for his glory, for his honor. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.